0: As we continue on in our series, A First Century Faith for the 21st Century Family, last week we talked about singleness, and today we're going to talk about marriage. How we're going to approach this is, I'm going to go over six different uh, teachings about marriage from Genesis all the way to the New Testament. We're not going to be able to cover all these different aspects and scenarios of what happens or doesn't happen in a marriage. But um, if this was the this would be the first message that I would give to a new believer, in terms of a new believing couple, rather, that was married. This would be what we're going to talk about, these six areas would be the first thing I would say to them if they had no knowledge of the Christian faith and they wanted to know what it meant to have a godly marriage. This message would also be the last message I would give to a married couple. Uh, some of you guys are going to listen to this who have been married. Uh, you maybe had uh, solid Christian parents growing up, and they taught you this. They kind of modeled this to you. Uh, maybe you practice, and you remember the things we're going to talk about, and so For those of you that are in that place, take this message as an encouragement. Take this as, uh, in a sense, the Lord's commendation to you that you are on the right path if you're a married couple or you have learned correctly the Lord's truths and how he views marriage. If you listen to this message and you realize, you know, I'm not living this out with my own spouse or I've recognized that how I view marriage uh, has been more informed by the world or my flesh or the devil, um, then you want to see this marriage and embrace it as a conviction of your heart to say, you know, this is the way of the Lord gently reminding you, instructing you to turn around and head in his direction. Uh, marriage is after your relationship with the Lord, the most significant relationship you will have if you choose to get married, if the Lord so graces you with that, after your relationship with the Lord. Uh, today, we live in an age where marriage is redefined as not male and female, but anything else beyond that. We live in an age where people, um, up to half, they say people get divorced. Uh, many people today choose not to get married, and so this is a very important topic for us as God's people. What we want to do is model for the world what it looks like for Christ to be at the center of our marriages. We want to model for our spouses what it looks like for Jesus, our hearts to be surrendered to Jesus and to love and serve and to submit to our spouse in a way that is God-honoring. And we want to model for the church For single people in the church, what a godly marriage should look like. And so there's a lot at stake in terms of what we're going to learn from today. Um, The Bible says that marriage is good. Genesis chapter 2, when God created Adam out of the earth, breathed life into his nostrils, and Adam uh, was given dominion over the earth, and he's naming all the animals. It says in Genesis 2 that there was no suitable helper that was found for him. And so God uh, put him to sleep, took a rib out of him, and created woman out of man. And when Adam saw woman, he said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And Adam was thrilled now that he was together with a true helper for him. And likewise for Adam, for Eve as well. Marriage is good. In Proverbs chapter 18, it says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. And obtains favor from the Lord, and I think you can apply that the other way too he who finds a husband as well, I think that's a reasonable thing to say finds favor from the Lord. not that you have do not find favor uh, from the Lord if you're single, but there is a blessing in marriage. so marriage is good. I want to say a couple more things uh, before we get into several passages uh, this morning. As you guys know, I've been reading a lot of Christian biographies. i mentioned that over the past few weeks. Um, and as I've been reading these godly men, these godly women, these Puritans, these reformers, these missionaries, these martyrs, one of the things that has struck me, especially over the past couple of weeks, uh, was... Their marriages. I mean, we often hear about their missionary accomplishments. We hear about the theologies that they passed on. We hear about how God used them to lead people to Christ and build up the church. And we all, you know, whether men or women, we hear all of these amazing things. And uh, sometimes we don't hear uh, that much about what their family life was like, what their marriages were like. And I just want to mention a few things. This might be an encouragement to you. But I think it will also be a reality check to you. And I'll just mention a few people. When you look throughout church history, uh, you can find people like a Jonathan Edwards. Uh, this, was, uh, this man was um, a Puritan, and he was probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, minds that America has ever produced. And Jonathan Edwards was a writer. He was a pastor. um, He was the president of Princeton uh, Princeton School, and and he had an amazing marriage from what we can tell. Uh, He married a woman. They had 11 children. Um, Edwards died when he was 53 years old of an infection, and his wife came to be with him at his side. They were separated at the time because she couldn't make the distance because of winter. She ended up dying thereafter, but he had a pretty good marriage, from what we can tell. You have other people like um, William Carey, the great missionary to India, and William Carey was instrumental in the modern missions movement here in the West. Carey uh, and his wife, uh, when they were in England, and he had uh, he was instrumental in forming the uh, Baptist Missionary Society. That would end up sending Carrie and his wife to India now, when they were making the decision to go to India, Carrie's wife initially did not want to go. They had three children she was like pregnant with their fourth and uh her her sister younger sister decided to go, and that helped persuade her to go with her husband or to go together to india and That was a struggle because once they got uh around that time or or thereabouts um, afterwards. Carrie's wife started to go insane. And uh, when they got to India, one of their sons died, and they didn't have a lot of medical um, you know, amenities that they had in England. And she ended up dying. Uh, Carrie's second wife that he married after that, he describes as he could search the entire earth and not find a better helpmate than the second wife that he uh married and she died and he had to marry a third time. And so there there's people like Jonathan Edwards who had these married, amazing marriages. You had William Carey who kind of like so, was somewhere in between. And then you have people like um, John Wesley and George Whitfield in the Great Awakenings and the revivals in England and and the American colonies where uh, as I mentioned last week, Wesley, who did not get married till his mid late 40s, uh, one commentary described his wife as one of the three most worst women who ever walked planet Earth. And George Whitfield, uh, one biographer uh, I read, said that uh, that his marriage uh, to his wife was described as an un- unhappy marriage. And, um, and so that that was a difficult time for many of these men. And I, I say that, maybe that's a little bit of a reality check. Maybe that's a little bit of just an encouragement to you because as we go through these scriptures, sometimes when you look at just all these commands and you can look at your own marriage, you can say, well, I, I'm just terrible. I'm not completely living this out 100%. But we forget that some of the most godly men and women throughout church history really struggled to live this out to per- Christian perfection. And yet God used them mightily. And um, And so maybe that's a good FYI for us as we begin our time together. So um, as we look at these six truths, we're going to look briefly, again, we're not going to look exhaustively, but briefly at God's design for marriage, goal for marriage, fulfillment of marriage. Uh, We're not going to be able to go into all the nuances of how this looks on a day-to-day level. We're not going to be able to go into all the nuances of what happens in this situation of divorce or remarriage. I mean, those are huge conversations uh, to address at another time. So let me pray for our time, and then we'll go ahead and go into it. Father, we pray that um, as you have instituted the the institution of marriage, really at the beginning of creation, um, this is an important thing to you to represent who you are um, and how we are to represent you on this earth. And so I pray, Lord, as we go through this, this would be an encouragement to us, that you would use this to affirm that, um, we who are married are truly living out and seeking to live out um, the truth about this all-important institution. I pray you would convict our hearts to the Spirit for areas that we really need to address, Lord, to um, to obey your commands, to live god oring lives. And I pray finally, Lord, for those of us that are not married, that uh, you would use this time to provide a vision for if we choose to get married, if you grace us with marriage, That uh, we would have a more solid foundation, Lord, of how to honor you in that. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at six different aspects of marriage, six different teachings on marriage. And let's go to the first marriage. When you go to Genesis chapter one and Ephesians chapter five, uh, we're going to begin our discussion on marriage. By talking about the theology of marriage and why this is so important as an institution here on earth. The issue of the theology of marriage is both Trinitarian and it is a representation of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. The debate today about, uh, you know, uh, gay marriage, about, You know, should it be man and man, woman and woman, and everything in between, is not really the issue, the primary issue as a Christian. It's not about human rights. It's not about how we have evolved or devolved as a society in terms of the state of marriage today. That is a crucial, important conversation. Uh, But oftentimes, people come to Christians and say, well, why do you make such a big deal about marriage? What about helping the poor? What about the environment? What about uh, uh, racial reconciliation? Aren't those important topics? Why why do you Christians make such a big deal about marriage? Well, when you realize that the theology of marriage at the core is Trinitarian, and it is about the, the visible representation of the relationship between Jesus and the church, you realize why this is such a big issue for the church. This is not probably about human rights. Or whatever your definition of that is. This is not about the legality of the issue. This is not about us which issue is more important. This goes to the very heart of who God is: the institution of marriage between male and female. And so, uh, this is a little bit, uh, you know, abstract, uh, theoretical, theological point. But it's very important that you understand this. And go to Genesis chapter one. We'll just look at verse twenty-six through twenty-eight. And I don't have the scriptures up here. You're just gonna have to turn to it. (coughs) So we're going to go all over the place. Uh, marriage is Trinitarian. In verse 26, Moses writes, Then God said, so God in the singular, the singular person of God. But then it says in verse 26, Let what? Us make man in what? Our image after our likeness. Let's stop there. Notice there is the singular God, but there is also the plural, us. Make uh, us, let us make man in our image, in our image after our likeness. So there you have the Trinity involved in the creation of man and woman, which is God the singular, but also God in three persons, the three persons of the Trinity: God the Father, God the Son, and uh, and God the Holy Spirit, the, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. That's the us, the plural, in verse 26. The Trinity is actually involved. And let them, that's the them, is the male and female, Adam and Eve, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God, that's essentially the Trinity, created man in his own image. The image of of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, verse 28, and God blessed them. Now, why is this important? Why is marriage, the marriage between a male and a female, Trinitarian? In these verses, that's who created man. And what you have in the theology of marriage is, follow this, a diversity in unity. A diversity in unity. For marriage to accurately reflect the Trinitarian nature of the institution, there must be both diversity and unity at the same time. What do we, ta- what do we mean by that? Diversity. Men and women are different. We can all, not, not just in the emotional makeup, not just in the relational makeup, but just physiologically different. We can all acknowledge that. There's a diversity between the male body and the female body. But when they come together in marriage, there is unity. There is unity in life. There's unity in spirit. There's unity in body, in marriage. There has to be a unity that is brought together and by diverse parts, just like the Trinity. The Trinity, there is diversity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three different persons but in some way that is beyond our understanding there is a unity between the three of them in the trinity there is diversity but there is also unity in marriage between male and female there also must be diversity and unity why because we man and male and female are made in the image of god and so when you break that diversity, and unity, togetherness. And you have a man marrying a a man, or a woman marrying a woman. You no longer have diversity and unity. What do you have? You have unity and a pseudo-unity. You have a person who looks just like the other person, and they try and join together, and you have the pseudo-unity. You no longer have the image of God of diversity and unity as a reflection of the Trinity. This is why the marriage issue is such a big deal. It's a Trinitarian issue. This is not primarily a legal issue. It's not primarily a sociological issue. This is not primarily an issue of of what we think is human rights or not. It's not what we think is loving or not as a society. This goes to the very nature of Christian theology. And secondly, if you could turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to come back to this later on in this message. Not only is the institution of marriage between a male and a female Trinitarian, it is also a, re- a reflection, a visible reflection, of the relationship between Christ and his church. In verse 23 and 25. And again, there's all, all this, a lot of this in there. I just want you to notice at this point um, how the Apostle Paul, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, relates the relationship between woman and man in marriage to the relationship between man, man as Christ and woman as the church. In verse um, 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Skip on down to verse 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the diversity becoming uh, coming together in unity. Verse 32, this, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to what? Christ and the church. So there you have it. The coming together, when the man and the woman leaves their parents and they come together in marriage, they're joined together. That's a mystery, he says. It, it, it is in some way a representation of, Of the relationship between Christ and the church, the relationship between man, male, and female in marriage. So, as followers of Jesus Christ, the institution of marriage, of male and female, is not something that, well, this is the tradition how it's always been done, but we're so advanced here in the 21st century. This goes to the very nature and the core of the Christian faith. And I believe that one of the reasons why uh, this has become such an issue. Uh, that touches the very core of Christians here in the 21st century. And in in the 20th century is because how marriage has been abandoned and redefined. There is something in Christians. We have the Holy Spirit that reacts against it in such a passionate way that God is essentially uh, using the church to say, no, this is a big deal. This is a big deal because it's Trinitarian and it is a reflection of the relationship of Christ and the church. So um, the first point is simply to say, uh, we need to take this seriously. And we need to defend marriage and speak about marriage in a godly way and model that. Number two, marriage, the Bible teaches, is also about submitting to one another in respect and in love. About submitting to one another in respect and in love, as the church we see here in Ephesians chapter five as the church submits to Christ as the head as Christ loves the church, so uh, Paul says here in Ephesians chapter five, we are to submit to one another, and women are to respect their husbands by and submit to their husbands by respecting them, and husbands are to submit to their wives by loving them. You go to Ephesians chapter 5, and sometimes we pick it up in in verse 22, but we actually should pick it up in verse 21. Because Paul says in verse 21, submitting, we are to submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 20, we always give thanks to everything for God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in a marriage, in a godly marriage, the husband is submitting to the wife. The wife is submitting to the husband. The husband is submitting to the wife by loving her. As Christ loves the church, the wife is submitting to the husband as the church uh, respects and submits to Christ. And so he says in Ephesians chapter 5, and I I think this is my opinion, but it is laid out this way. It is interesting that the Apostle Paul addresses wives first. He says, verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands And as you submit to them, you're doing it not primarily for them, but who? To the Lord. And the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, as we read a few moments ago. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Um, And he goes on to say later on in this passage, that in verse 33, they see to it that let the wife see that she respects her husband. I think that's the primary definition of submitting, that the husband can look at the wife and say, this woman respects me. Um, she's willing to follow my lead. Now, I know we could have endless discussions on what does submitting to your husband look like. Um, in the same way as we get to this in a moment, and I'm going to give some thoughts on that in a moment, um, but let me move on to the husband. It says in verse 25, husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving, giving himself up for her. Husbands, we are to sacrifice ourselves even to the point of death for our wives. And our responsibility, verse 26, is to see that she's sanctified and sanctified um, by the washing of the water with the word that, that our homes and we're leading our wives is according to God's truth so that we are going to present our wives, it says in verse um, in the following verses, to the Lord. As the church is presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle. Verse 28 In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Uh, When it says love your own bodies in verse 28, it's not necessarily talking about are you, you know, are you metro or not? Like, do you really groom yourself in this great way? It really has the idea of uh, we all love our bodies. I mean, we all wash them, feed them. if we, if we just get a splinter, we're like, ah, yeah, I gotta get this out of me, right? We, we think about our bodies all the time, whether it's consciously or, or unconsciously. And so that's really the idea, as much as the attention that you give to your own body, because now your body is one with your wife, that you are to love her body and her being as you think about your own body. And you nourish it and cherish it. In verse 29, he says, And so we are to, it says in verse 33, each let each one of you love his wife submitting to one another wife submits in everything, respects her husband, a husband submits to the wife and he loves her and washes her by teaching and modeling and leading her in the word of God so that she may be presented as a sanctified vessel before the Lord. This is the essence of Paul's teaching. That in a marriage, we are to submit ourselves to the Lord. We are to submit ourselves to each other in respect and love. Now, I think when Paul's talking about submitting, he's not submitting in everything to the wife. I do not believe he's saying that submit to every single demand the husband has, every ultimatum the husband has, and he is the dictator, and you are the slave in this relationship, And you have no say in anything. You have no choice in anything. That's not what he's saying. That's not the essence of what he's saying. Because a husband who's truly submitted to the Lord and to the wife uh, would not be that way in a marriage um, as a way of, of life in the marriage. And when it says to love your wife, I don't think what Paul has in mind here is to simply say, Hey, I, I love you, wife. Whatever you want, whatever you want to do, whatever you want to buy, whatever you, whatever decisions you want to make. I'm just your doormat. You you just tell me what to do because that's my way of serving you and loving you. Um, I don't think that that's the issue either. There is a sense in a marriage where um, the woman has to feel loved, and the man has to be respected. And you can go to the outer bounds of what that looks in an ugly way, but that's not the essence of what Paul is saying. I think Lorraine and I, when we look back, we, we've been married uh for um 16 and a half years now. And, you know, most of that has been great. You know, and we have a great marriage. We have wonderful kids. Uh, like in any marriage, there have been moments where we've had honked our horns at each other, got into traffic jams, taken the wrong street uh, exit off the freeway, and uh, it's taken us a while to get back at times. And I think what we've discovered, that at the core, the biggest disagreements that we've had, the biggest roadblocks we've had in our relationship as a married couple have come when Lorraine has felt like I'm not loving her in a way that's godly and have come when I feel like my wife is not respecting me in a way that I feel is godly. Love and respect. Um, You know, yesterday I was there and um, I was reading and I kind of had finished some of the work I had to do. And I thought about it. I go, you know what? I need to clean up my room. <laughs> because that has been an ongoing conversation that uh, we've had. Now, I am the type of person where my room can be a complete mess. I, if I'm on my own, I'm just like, as I know where everything is, even though it looks like a mess to everyone. And that's order to me. I, I feel comfortable with the chaos. Yeah, there you go. Some of the most genius minds have been like, but Lorraine does not, you know? And I, I had to ask myself yesterday, um, what would be the most loving thing for my wife? And sp- so I spent like 45 minutes just cleaning my room, right? Um, yes. And I've done that several times over the past year, and I've cleaned it, but then it's just gone into decline. And then I clean it, and it's gone into decline, right? So I'm, I'm still a work in progress. But my point is, that was just a small way of, maybe I wouldn't care about that, but my wife cared about it, so what was the most loving thing in that moment? Um, and so I want to say one more thing on this. I wish we could spend a lot more time and, have these great discussions uh, on this, but uh, I want, in terms of love and respect, if you're asking yourself, how can I submit to my spouse and love them in the way that God wants, love them in the way they need to be loved? How can I submit myself and respect my husband in a way that God wants and in a way that my husband feels he needs to be respected? Um, I'll just give you a few um, encouragements. Number one, you need to ask the Lord. You need to go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, Help me, give me the wisdom to know I'm not respecting or I'm not loving in the way that I should, Um, or maybe I am and maybe I should be commended on that and that's good, but ask the Lord. Go to the Lord first and say, Lord, examine my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Search me, Lord, or give me confirmation that I'm on the right path. Um, Secondly, I think you need to ask your spouse. Say, honey, am I respecting you in the way that you feel you need to be respected? Honey, am I loving you in the way that you feel you need to be loved? And they will definitely have opinions on that. And maybe they'll say yes, maybe they'll say no. Um, a third aspect is you can ask other Christian brothers and sisters. I think it's, I, I told Lorraine, I go, you know, if if you ever want to vent about me, you can talk to any woman you want and you can say whatever you want. I just did, I gave her no restrictions on that. I just felt like, you know what, um, she needs to be able to choose and have other women or married friends that she can talk seek counsel from, etc. cetera, um, seek out the body of Christ. And uh, I, I think those three will help you as well, as well as looking at God's word. I wish we could spend more time on that, but let's move on. Uh, to this, this one, which I'm sure will be a great follow-up to that, which is marriage. In marriage, there's a sexual duty and the issue of sexual authority in marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Now, the Apostle Paul, when he writes this, goes out of his way to mention this. Paul was probably married at some point as a ranking member of the Sanhedrin. It's a requirement that you were married. However, the Paul that we essentially knew in the New Testament was not married. And so whether he, you know, he's speaking and saying, hey, you guys, you knew I was married, so I can speak on this. Or he's just saying, hey, this is just a word from the Lord or somewhere in between. We know that this is inspired by the Lord. All scriptures is inspired. And Paul makes a point in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, to talk about this. Before, he talks about singleness and, and these other aspects of marriage. So the sexual relationship in a marriage is important. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, It is good for men not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what um, they wrote. Um, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. He's using this, this kind of legal language, this rights. This person has rights over your body. Um, As a spouse, verse 4, for the woman does not have... Then there's this word authority, uh, which in the Greek word, this word authority had this idea of authority over everything for, for the foreseeable future. Does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, it's not to say the wife doesn't have authority over her own body. It's just to say that the husband also has authority over it as well. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Verse 5, do not deprive one another. That is specifically talking about sexually. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Um, you know, there were instances where someone might be mourning the, the the death of a family member. And they're like, I need time to mourn. Or there was a special, especially a devastating thing that happened health-wise. And so you have to abstain from sexual relationships in a marriage. Um, devoting yourself to prayer. But then he says, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you. That's a pretty powerful uh, admonition there, a warning. He's, Paul's literally saying that Satan can come into a marriage to tempt a marriage because of your lack of self-control. Okay, Now, there's a lot in there. But what we realize is that marriage is not just for companionship. Marriage is not just to uh, be fruitful and multiply and, and have children to perpetuate the human race. Marriage is not just for the protection of the woman and the civilization, civilizing of the man. Marriage is not just for raising children. You and your spouse are now one, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and physically. And because we are one, Our bodies are not just our own. Our spouse, we have a duty to our spouse sexually, and our spouse has a voice of authority over our own body sexually. There's no way around that, what Paul's saying. He's actually telling them, and he's encouraging and warning them. He's saying, you must fulfill your duty, husband, to your wife. Wife, you must fulfill your duty to your husband because they have authority over your body and vice versa. And if you don't, he says, and you're not, you're not, and if you're abstaining from having sexual relations with your spouse for a reason other than devoting yourself to a short period of time for, for prayer or agreed upon time, then Satan himself can come in and tempt you. And I would just say this. The more wives and husbands can obey what Paul is clearly saying here, that is coming from the Lord. The more husbands and wives can see their sexual relationship with their husband or their wife and say, it's not just a matter of uh, my, my choice and what I want to do in a certain moment or not. This is also about a duty that I have. It's about recognizing the God-given authority of the person that I have married has a claim over my body. And it is a privilege. It is an honor, not just a duty, to fulfill that command, to serve my spouse in this way. And that is just the reality of marriage. The more us as husbands, the more us as wives can be committed to that, the more it will um, create a healthy marriage. The more it will safeguard a marriage against Sexual temptation in the form of pornography, a wandering eye, adultery, and every other form of of sexual immorality. You want to do that as a spouse. Uh, There was a movement in the church maybe about 20 years ago um, that just took this too far. Like a lot of churches were teaching on the Song of Solomon and uh, talking about this verse and saying, well, you know, husband and wife, you need to just have sexual relations um, as many times as you can, and it, it's just great. And it just kind of went overboard, right? And I don't think that that's what Paul is saying here. I think he's saying, just remember, there's a duty, and your spouse is an authority, and you need to come to a place in your marriage where that's in a healthy place. It's not just about you. And I think that's the gist of it. And that will be a healthy, God-honoring, safeguarded marriage. Let's move on. Number four. Marriage is also a commitment. It is also a lifelong commitment. In First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 through 11, um, Paul says this, To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, and that's more of a concession in verse 11, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. It's... it's Straight out, plain command. When you get married, it's for life. Uh, you are to avoid divorce at all circumstances. And if divorce does come upon you, you're not to remarry unless it's certain specific circumstances. There's a whole lot we could say about this, but essentially the Bible says there's three circumstances. If you ended up getting, you should only get divorced if there's adultery involved in the marriage. And even if there's adultery, I think the sweep when you look at the Old Testament, where God says, "I hate divorce," um, and the sweep of the New Testament, you want to you want to try and repair the marriage if possible. But um, in terms of divorce, there's only really two circumstances that that is allowable in the New Testament: adultery on the case on the um, uh, from from the other spouse on the actions of the other spouse, and number two. If you are find yourself married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever wants to leave the marriage, you are commanded to let them go. If they really want to leave, rather than force them to stay, those are really the only two grounds reasonable for divorce that Scripture says. In terms of remarriage, um, if the believer that person that you uh, are married to dies, those are really the three circumstances that have to be worked. I know there's a lot of circumstances. What about you know physical abuse in the marriage and stuff and Can you separate them to save your own life? I believe the answer is yes to that. Uh, But there's all these different scenarios of how that works out that has to really be worked out in a counseling situation. But that is the gist, the essence of what Paul is saying here. The main commitment that you make when you get married is to marry for life. And so after your choice to uh, follow Jesus Christ as a Christian, there is no bigger decision you will make with your life uh, than who you get married to if you end up getting married. I can't think of a bigger decision. What, your career is going to be a bigger decision? How much money you make is going to be a bigger decision? Whether you even have kids? No. Those are all important decisions. Where you live, the the decision on who you get married. So you need to make that decision with prayer. You need to make it with counsel from the church. You need to make that um, with the counsel of scripture as well. And you need to be very um selective in terms of making sure that you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, marry another follower of Jesus Christ who is actively walking with the Lord. Because if you're gonna spend the next 30, 40, 50 plus years with this person, um, that's every day. And so um you wanna be able to make that commitment. When we got married, Lorraine and I were talking about marriage, you know, we just turned to you and said, Divorce is not an option. It's just not. Okay. We're gonna make this lifelong commitment um until we die. And so um that is our view, and I think that's the uh view of that. Marriage is not in our culture today, it's seen as a test drive. I'll try it. If I don't like it, I'll just change. Um, that's not the way of God. Number five. Amidst your commitment, your lifelong commitment to your spouse, amidst your duties, to your spouse, uh, in terms of your marital physical duties to your spouse, amidst your um, responsibility as the woman to respect the husband and the husband to love the wife and to submit to each other and to have a godly marriage, amidst all of that, there is this other aspect to it that you sometimes don't hear preached, but it is right there in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And that is this. Amidst all of the considerations that are inward-looking about you and your marriage, there is also this other consideration that even once you get married, you are still under command. You still have a commitment and responsibility to the work of the Lord, to the things of the Lord that are not just in your family, but are even outside of your family, in the church, and your mission in the world. Translation. When you get married, you cannot just be about you and your your spouse and your kids and, uh, and, you know, kind of your life. You got to be about the work of the Lord outside of your marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29 through 31. Skip on down a little bit further. Paul says this, verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. He's talking to the Corinthian church, and which includes married people. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. How often do you hear that at a marriage conference? Verse 30, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings, for the present form of this world is passing away. Verse 29 through 31, 1 Corinthians 7. He's talking about this. Uh, You can actually go a little bit earlier than that. Verse 26, he talks about this time being a time of what? Present distress. Verse 26. Going back to verse 29, this is a time that is um, growing very short. Verse 31, again, the present form of this world is passing away. What is Paul saying here in these verses? He's saying when you're married, you got to live with urgency. When you're married, you got to be committed to serving the church. When you're married, you got to be committed to making disciples of Jesus Christ, not just of your own kids, not just growing as disciples in your own marriage, but in the church and in the mission that you, you, God has given to you as a family out in the world. you got to have an urgency to that, even as a married couple. Lorraine and I made a commitment when we got married. We said, you know what? When we get married, we are not going to allow... Our marriage or kids, if we uh, if God gives us kids, to put ourselves on a trajectory to where our family life and our marriage simply looks like got a great home, got a good bank account, we got kids that are headed on their way to college, we drive decent cars, we get to go on vacations. Hey, those are blessings for love That's that's you know all fine and good, and we participate in that. And I'm not saying that's bad by nature. What I'm saying is. That was not going to, and you know, maybe we attend church, you know, this was not going to be our lives. We said we can enjoy those blessings, one, but two, we're also going to be focused on the mission that God has for us as married couple and then married couple with kids. We're going to be committed to making disciples. We're going to be committed to helping the poor and the suffering. We're going to be committed to seeing people's lives restored as a married couple. We're going to have an urgency. Why? It's because this is exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, the appointed time is short. You're living in a time of present distress and darkness. The world's passing away. He's saying in this passage, you know, even if you're mourning, you, you should still move forward as if you're not mourning as a married couple. He says, if you're rejoicing, great things are happening to you. You should still live as if you're not rejoicing, even though you are rejoicing, because the time is short. He's saying, if you're buying stuff, you got all these goods, there should be an aspect where you can enjoy it, but also live as if you don't have, be willing to part with it and et cetera. You're dealing with the world and all, all the world has for you and your job and stuff, still be focused as a married couple and as a family for the work of the Lord. Um, this, you saw this in the New Testament and in the apostolic times. Uh, church tradition says that the apostle Peter, and I, I, I you know, I, I visited the dungeon where Peter and Paul stayed in uh, the Mamertino um, prison in Rome it was, you know, this past summer. It's a dark, dank place, depressing place. And, and Peter was in Rome in the 60s, uh, 60s AD. Now, he died sometime uh, during the New Testament, but church tradition says that, and you know this, that he has he to be crucified upside down. However, it, church tradition also says that before Peter was crucified, and he requested to be up, crucified upside down because that was more painful than right side up because he didn't feel he was worthy to die in the way of his Lord. Peter actually had to watch his wife be crucified before him. What was Peter's wife doing in Rome? I mean, you know, maybe she's in her 60s. Maybe I, we don't know. Did he have kids? We don't even know that. But if they did have kids, they probably would have been grown up by that time. Uh, but she easily could have been in Galilee. You know, hanging around with the, you know, the other elderly women. What's she doing in Rome with Peter getting crucified? Answer, she was on mission with him as a married couple. Uh, I was driving over here with Darcy on the way over and she was saying, well, how do we know what it means to take care of yourselves, you know, as a family? How do you balance that with the mission that God has for your marriage and, and, um, and, and children? And I just said, well, you know, part of that is perspective, Darcy. Here in the 21st century, in Southern California, you have to realize, I would have been considered a prince. You would have been considered like the, the princess of Pharaoh. The way we live, we get to eat whatever we want. We get to go on vacations. We have world class healthcare. We get to buy clothes that we want. Now, I know to what degree how much money we have. That's a different issue. But in general, every one of you could walk out this door, and if you really had to, could say we're going to buy a steak dinner for our entire family. You could, you, you have, you would have the money to do. It. You have the freedom to do that. We get to go drive up to. Um, that would have been a, a massive vacation. My point is, is that. This is how we think of taking care of the family today. Okay? When you look at the sweep of New Testament and church history, what, you know, the, the average person in uh, medieval times, in time of reforma- Reformation, on a good day, was walking around with a low-grade fever. That's what healthcare was like in those days, right? And so we have to, you know, put things in perspective here. Like what the Corinthian church um, gave out of their own poverty, Second Corinthians chapter 8, I mean, they're, they're, certainly people are married. Can you imagine the conversations between the husband and wife? Honey, we don't have much money. Husband's like, wait well, yeah, out, Paul's asking for a donation to give to the believers in Jerusalem. Let's give out of our poverty to that, right? These people were on mission with God. Um, one of the biographies that I've got is Martin Luther. And you guys know this because I, I mentioned this during the pandemic, during one of the sem- uh, sermons during the pandemic. Uh, Martin Luther wrote a little pamphlet. Uh, because uh, during his day, when he was a pastor in Germany, the uh, black, uh, black plague had, had broken out, you know, broke out over many centuries in different places. But the plague had broken out, bubonic plague had broken out around the villages that he was pastoring. And uh, he wrote this pamphlet that basically said, look, if you feel you need to leave in good conscience, you can leave, you can protect yourself. But you shouldn't leave those behind who can't leave without, you know, making provision for them. But then he also said, if you can stay during the plague, uh, then you should do so. Luther and his wife Catherine chose to stay, pastoring through the plague. They're ministering; these people are dying left and right. Catherine uh, gave birth to one of their babies, and the baby soon thereafter died. Which Catherine believes that uh, the baby died because they had stayed and exposed the baby to the plague. Okay, and you talk about you know looking after the needs of others and living with urgency. These days, these is how people lived. And so my point is just this, and we'll move on to the last, is that we have to balance our needs as a family, which are really, we live like royalty compared to most people in human history, with making sure that our marriages and marriages and our children are on mission with God in a way that's not just our family. And it really is um, taking steps of faith, sacrificial and um, for the kingdom. Number six. Last point for today. There's no marriages in heaven. It's temporary. Matthew chapter 22. As blessed as marriage is, as wonderful of an institution and um, companionship and fulfillment and um, children and, and just doing life together, as wonderful as that it is, it's temporary. Uh, Jesus said this specifically in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29 and following. It says, but Jesus answered them, You are wrong, and he's talking at this point to the Sadducees that asked a complicated question about marriage and remarriage and what it would look like in heaven. So that's kind of the verses before that. Verse 29, uh Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. For and as for the resurrection of the dead, uh you have not read what was said to you by God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is, he is not God of the dead, but God of the living. Verse 29, he says, look, um, in the resurrection, there's no marriage. And people are not given a marriage. You, um, the Mormons believe that, one of the reasons why Mormons have such big families is because in their theology, which is totally unbiblical, they believe that the more kids you have here on earth, The greater your celestial kingdom you'll have in heaven. And I believe you might have like numerous spouses and stuff even in heaven and so forth. And it's part of the reasons why you have such big Mormon families. It's not just commitment to the holiness of the family, so to speak. There's a reward in in their theology. Uh, Jesus says, no, there's no marriages. Why? We're going to be, he says, made like the angels. You know, he says elsewhere, we're going to be made like the angels. Not, not. As angels, but we're going to have bodies that are glorified, bodies that are eternal, bodies that are powerful. We're going to be able to do things and and be in a, um, a resurrected body. It'll be very different than our bodies here, but not exactly like the angels. And in heaven, we'll be living in perfect harmony between us and God, between us and other believers. So there's no need for marriage there. Um,. And so it's a temporary thing. And I think that's important to remember, right? Because if you're married here, this is it. And as blessed as your marriage is, it's, there's, a, there's a time limit to it. Um, and the older you get, the more people die around you. And even unexpectedly, you realize, well, that, that was it. I mean, we, what, what, what if you knew, and we don't, right? What if you knew that, yeah, you only had 10 years of marriage. You only had 15 years. I only had 30 years. Of my, that can totally happen. Right? There's all these things that can happen. And when you look at it that way, you're like, whoa, maybe I'll be one of those couples that lives for, you know, in marriage, has a marriage that lasts 50 plus years, but maybe I won't. Maybe it'll be a lot shorter. Things happen in life. And so when you look at it that way, I, I, I'm reminded of that. You know, Garen talks about urgency. At, at some, I think, you know what? That is a good reminder of me for me and my marriage to cherish my wife, to really, um, my marriage and my children, obviously, and to um, value it because it can all be speak gone a lot sooner than I th- might think or want. So that's marriage. So let's honor the Lord with our marriages. Let's have these important discussions about respect and love. Let's remember the uh, theological basis for marriage. Um, let's fulfill our duty. Uh, sexually to our our marriages. Let's make a commitment, a lifelong commitment to our marriages, and let's be devoted to the work of the Lord outside of our marriages. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, as we close right now, uh, what a grand sweep of this all-important relationship that we have with our spouses or maybe hope to have one day. And I pray that City Bible Church would be A fruitful, prosperous, godly expression of what you yourself have instituted as a reflection of the relationship that you share with the Son and the Spirit, that we may represent Christ and his church well here on this earth and be devoted to the clear commands of how to do that. I pray you'd raise up the couples in this church to live godly and loving and holy and wise and peaceful Lives in their marriages in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, let's uh, stand. We'll close together.